Chapter 14 of The Life of Oscar Wilde by Robert Sherard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 14 The year 1892 was the annus mirabilis of our poor hero's life. It was to put within his grasp those things which seemed desirable to him, the things for which he had laboured so long amidst such disappointments and with efforts so varied. He was not to know then, nor were his delighted friends to know, what success was to bring in its train, nor what would be the dreadful effect of the intoxicating draught of triumph which at last he was able to raise to his lips in the golden beaker of popular fame. The year began auspiciously for him, for in January the foremost organ of English criticism, the Athenaeum, which had steadily censured his work in the past, reviewed in a flattering and advantageous manner another collection of short stories, Lord Arthur Savile's Crime and Other Stories, which had been published in the previous July by Messrs Osgood, McIlvain and Company. These stories were meant to teach nothing. They were amusettes, merely, intended to interest and amuse, potboilers, as the argot of the craft calls them. When Oscar Wilde wrote, apropos of the reviews of Dorian Gray, that he had no wish to become a popular novelist because that was far too easy, he was indulging in no vainglorious boast. Ne fact c'est tout qui vote could not be said to him. It was a positive fact that had he chosen to write marketable stuff, there was nobody in London who could have produced a more saleable and more popular line of fictional reading matter. He could invent amusette stories by the hundreds. Many of his friends have heard him do it. When he was living in Charles Street, Grosvenor Square, his brother Willie, who used to write stories for the papers and the magazines, often came to him in the mornings, while Oscar was still in bed, and would say, Oscar, I want the plot of a story or two. Yates is asking me for some. Then Oscar, still puffing his cigarette, would begin to invent stories. One morning, a friend of his recalls, he thus invented the plots of six short stories for his brother in less than half an hour. The stories were afterwards written and proved very popular. He furnished many other men with the ideas which nature had refused to them. He equipped many writers with their entire stock in trade. The mere eavesdropper at his door showed that he could found a literary reputation and a fortune on such fragments of Oscar Wilde's conversation as, straining his ears, he was able to overhear. In Lord Arthur Savile's Crime, he gives a specimen of this kind of work. It is not an exaggeration to say that had he chosen, he could have produced a volume of at least equal merit every month of his life but he despised work of that kind. It was far too easy. Still, the elements of popularity and of financial reward were there. Here, for instance, is the opinion of the Athenaeum referred to above. 
now the athenaeum's opinions have an undoubted effect on the trade and it is in the hands of the retail bookseller that the fame and fortune of literary craftsmen rest in our commercial england mr oscar wilde's little book of stories so runs this review which appeared in the number for twenty third january eighteen ninety two is capital they are delightfully humorous witty and fresh sparkling with good things full of vivacity and well put together Quote, the canterville ghost is a first-rate ghost story told partly from the point of view of the ghost himself a most refreshing novelty and partly from that of the american family who have bought the ancestral home of the cantervilles lord arthur savile's crime is a very good story too told in the vein of drollery which is quite distinctive these two pieces will bear reading aloud a decidedly severe test Unquote. as late as last year there was on sale in one of the second-hand bookshops in london a copy of this book which was inscribed constance from oscar july ninety one it was the copy which he had presented to his wife in this volume the following passages were marked in pencil no doubt by the author himself wishing to call attention to certain parts of the book which stern had he been the writer would probably have printed on purple patches it will give a taste of the quality of this book if we reproduce three passages so marked Quote, actors are so fortunate they can choose whether they will appear in tragedy or in comedy whether they will suffer or make merry laugh or shed tears but in real life it is so different most men and women are forced to perform parts for which they have no qualifications our guildensterns play hamlet for us and our hamlet has to jest like prince hal the world is a stage but the play is badly cast and yet it was not the mystery but the comedy of suffering that struck him its absolute uselessness its grotesque want of meaning how incoherent everything seemed how lacking in all harmony he was amazed at the discord between the shallow optimism of the day and the real facts of existence he was still very young Unquote. it was perhaps not after all to draw the attention of his wife to the purple patches in his book that oscar wilde made those pencil marks in this volume it was perhaps in one of those lucid moments of foreboding which come to certain men he may have foreseen the part that was to be forced upon him to play have felt in advance the absolute uselessness of the suffering which he was to undergo and have detected behind the shallow optimism of the day what were the real facts of existence in the concluding words of the third passage we also detect a strange application to his own case as the future was to reveal it the great piles of vegetables looked like masses of jade against the morning sky like masses of green jade against the pink petals of some marvellous rose lord arthur felt curiously affected but could not tell why 
there was something in the dawn's loveliness that seemed to him inexpressibly pathetic and he thought of all the days that break in beauty and that set in storm Unquote. the time was however now at hand when his apparent optimism and that mask of strong confidence in himself which gave such umbrage to his rivals were to receive at the hands of the British public their fullest warranty. It was on the night of 20th February that there was produced at the St. James's Theatre the new and original play in four acts, Lady Windermere's Fan by Oscar Wilde. The performance announced itself as a success even before the curtain had risen on the first act. The house was full, the audience was a friendly one still london society was yet unconquered the audience if friendly was not a brilliant one it was le grand bohème that came to judge of oscar wilde as a dramatist never says a contemporary writer did audience at a premiere appear less brilliantly attired the duchesses, countesses, and other grandes dames, whose foibles and follies were to be held up over the footlights, were absent. Amongst the ladies present whose toilettes were noticed were Mrs. Bram Stoker, in a wonderful evening wrap of striped brocade, Mrs. Jopling Rowe, becomingly arrayed in shrimp pink, lightly accented with black, Mrs. Panero, Miss Julia Nielsen and Miss Florence Terry. Mrs. Oscar Wilde was there, and we read that, quote, she looked charming in her pale blue brocaded gown made after the fashion of Charles I's time, with its long tabbed bodice, slashed sleeves, and garniture of old lace and pearls. Unquote. Amongst other distinguished people in the audience were Mrs. Langtree, Mrs. Campbell Pride, Mr. Bancroft, Mrs. Hare, Mr. Charles Matthews, Mr. Inderwick, Dr. Playfair, Mr. Luke Files, Mr. Forbes Robertson, and Mr. Oswald Crawford. The success of the play was never in doubt, and here again Oscar Wilde's peculiar genius triumphed. He established the falsity of that axiom, the play is the thing which the greatest of dramatists laid for the guidance of future playwrights. His play was not the thing to which he had paid attention, on which he had laboured. His story was of the kind which has always tempted Tyro dramatists. It was only another version of The Wife's Secret. For the first night or two of Lady Windermere's fan, the secret of Mrs. Erlin's identity was kept from the audience until the denouement which was of course the greatest mistake that the playwright could have committed mrs erlin is lady windermere's mother a déclassé who is supposed to be dead but whom lord windermere befriends for her daughter's sake from this proceeds the entanglement in a caricature of Oscar Wilde, which appeared in the following number of Punch, he was represented as leaning on a pedestal with his elbow propped upon volumes of Odette, Francillon, and Les Supplices d'une Femme, to make room for which a bust of Shakespeare has been dethroned. At his feet is a volume of Sheridan's comedies. 
The suggestion was, of course, that he had drawn his inspiration from these various works. Many other plays in which the Donne is almost identical with that of Lady Windermere's fan might have been cited. The question was not there. It was by his way of treating a time-old subject that he scored his great success. His dialogue was wonderful because it was he himself talking all the time. And he never failed to charm and delight, almost to the point of mental intoxication, those who were privileged to listen to him. There was no reason that his success should have been any smaller here. For the rest, the play was beautifully produced. The dresses and decorations were magnificent, and the acting, far from being, as Oscar Wilde once put it, a source of danger in the perfect representation of a work of art, made a play of what risked at one time to be classed only as a spoken extravaganza. At the end of the performance, in answer to the enthusiastic calls of the audience, Oscar Wilde came in front of the curtain. He was carrying a half-smoked cigarette in his hand. He made a curious speech, in which he said that he was pleased that they had enjoyed themselves, which was what he could say of himself. The carrying of a cigarette and the tone of the speech were most adversely commented upon by the critics. Clement Scott in Monday's Daily Telegraph was severe on the breach of manners committed. Quote, when undeterred by manager, unchecked by the public voice, unreprimanded by men, and tacitly encouraged by women, an author lounges in front of the footlights without any becoming deference of attitude, takes no trouble to fling aside his half-smoked cigarette, and proceeds to compliment the audience on its good sense in liking what he himself has condescended to admire. Unquote. In truth, the chastisement administered was much more severe. These are some extracts from the article which appeared in that journal. Quote, it is strange that the legitimate Irish successor to Joe Miller should have forgotten one of the stalest stories of his native Dublin. There was once on a time a row in a Dublin gallery. Throw him over! Throw him out! were the cries vociferously yelled by the gods. But during the lull there came a reproving voice. Be easy, boys! Don't waste him! Spoil a fiddler with him! They were dangerously near spoiling a fiddler with Oscar Wilde last Saturday night. No one was quite prepared for his last move in calm effrontery, deliberately planned and gratuitously offensive. It took the whole audience aback. But when the meaning of the whole thing dawned upon those present, when it was discovered that the so-called dramatist was calmly puffing himself between the whiffs of a cigarette in a public playhouse, I could see the fists and toes of countless men nervously twitching. They wanted to get at him. Luckily for Oscar, the well-known pitites and gallery boys did not patronise the St. James Theatre, else that famous speech would never have been finished without serious damage to Mr. Alexander's property. Unquote. In Punch of the following week, the incident was the subject of an article illustrated with the caricature referred to above, and entitled A Wild Tag to a Tame Play, 
where Oscar Wilde's gaucherie was humorously, and not too unkindly, satirised. For that his conduct was nothing but a gaucherie, it needs not charity to believe. It is obvious. The man was under the shock of a great joy. He had temporarily lost his head. He did not know what he was doing. We have all read of the strange antics which dramatic authors have performed under similar emotion. Daudet, for instance, used to go rushing along the streets of Paris like a madman. In Oscar's case, emotion would be all the more overwhelming that the verdict of the audience that night meant for him rescue from all the forlorn makeshifts and hazardous expedients of his career, release from poverty, popular affirmation of a talent which his detractors had persistently denied. All those things, in fact, which artists may disdain, but for lack of which they perish. He was a bulky, full-blooded man. The blood rushed to his head, and he was unconscious of what he was doing. As to the cigarette, well, it was half-smoked. It had not been lighted for the purpose of the entry. He was such a habitual smoker that probably he did not even know that he had a cigarette in his hand. Such smokers notice nothing except when they are not smoking. As to his remarks, it was the bafouillage of a man who was not master of himself. Possibly he remembered vaguely in his confusion that the Latin dramatists used to put into the mouths of the actor who spoke last a message to the audience to applaud. Poor Oscar's classical training played him unconsciously a nasty trick. His vos plaudite was taken as an offence. The thing is so obvious. Is it probable that a man who had been struggling for years for success, popularity and money from his profession would deliberately insult his audience and ruin the prospects which had shown themselves so rosy? The man was not a fool, and it seems as unlikely, unless we are to consider him suffering that night from one of the attacks of his epileptiform malady, that he would have acted as he did from a deliberate and calculated wish to treat his patrons with insolent arrogance, as that he purposely made a corrupt and immoral book of his novel. For the rest, the London public took no notice of the incident. The author's private manners did not concern it at all. There was a good play to be seen at the St. James's Theatre, and London went to see it. The opinion, then expressed, has been ratified since. The play has frequently been revived, and each time with increased success. It is playing this year in America before enthusiastic houses. On the continent, with the exception perhaps of Italy, this play meets with little approval. For the French it is chose vue. The Germans speak of it as a Gartenmauer comedy, which means something that appeals only to the public in a certain environment. As he drove home radiant that night, Oscar Wilde could say to himself, I am the author of Lady Windermere's fan. No doubt that he did say it. May it be hoped that no foreboding came to trouble his tranquil joy, no foreboding of the time so close at hand when he might be called by no other name than that. Three years of prosperity and triumph were to be accorded to him. The period of want was over. 
he was acknowledged one of the first playwrights on the English stage. His income sprang from nothing to several thousands a year. During this period of three years, he produced successfully three other plays. On 19th April 1893 was performed his A Woman of No Importance. On this occasion, he was blamed for not responding to the cry of the audience for a speech. This time, however, he had kept his head, for such emotions as had moved him on the night of his first success came to a man once only in life. A woman of no importance, frequently played since, formerly as by the author of Lady Windermere's Fan, and now under the author's real name, has continued to please and amuse the English-speaking audiences of two worlds. In 1895, he produced two plays of a very different character. The one, An Ideal Husband, was first brought out on 3rd January. The Times critic wrote of this performance, quote, An ideal husband was brought out last night with a similar degree of success to that which has attended Mr. Wilde's previous productions. It is a similar degree of success due to similar causes. For an ideal husband is marked by the same characteristics as Lady Windermere's fan and a woman of no importance. There is a group of well-dressed men and women on the stage talking a strained, inverted, but rather amusing idiom, while the action, the dramatic motive, springs from a conventional device of the commonest order of melodrama. Unquote. The Athenaeum's criticism may also be quoted in part. It endeavours to explain Oscar Wilde's dramaturgical process, and to account for his undeniable success. Quote, One of the constituent elements of wit is the perception of analogies in things apparently disparate and incongruous. Accepting this as a canon, and testing it by the pretensions of Oscar Wilde in his latest play, the writer might be pronounced the greatest of wits, inasmuch as he perceives analogies in things absolutely antagonistic. His presumable end is gained since a chorus of laughter attends his propositions or paradoxes. It requires, however, gifts of a kind not usually accorded to humanity to think out a statement such as high intellectual pleasures make girls' noses large. Only dull people are brilliant at breakfast. All reasons are absurd, and the like. Unquote. An intimate friend of Oscar Wilde's remembers talking of this criticism with the playwright. Quote, it is not very difficult, Oscar, he said, to see what suggested to you the statements which the critic finds so weird. When you wrote that about girls' noses, you had probably in mind the connection between the pains of thought and that French expression which describes the lengthening of the nose as an outward physical sign of mental perplexity or chagrin, faire ou nez. As to the remark about dull people being brilliant at breakfast, you obviously meant that nervous, high-strung people, people of pleasure, of thought, of midnight labours, are, in fact, at their worst at breakfast time, when by contrast with them, the eupeptic, healthy people, not of nervous temperaments, appear at their best. You are quite right, said Oscar. 
but you overlook the third statement complained of all reasons are absurd till then oscar wilde's success as a playwright had been great yet he had not so far shown even a small part of the splendid service which it was in his power to render to the gaiety of our nation in the early part of january he devoted a fortnight to the writing of a comedy of the farcical order to which he gave the name of the importance of being earnest this was produced for the first time on fourteenth february at the st james's theatre the author described this piece himself as a trivial comedy for serious people he is reported also to have said of it that the first act is ingenious the second beautiful the third abominably clever as a matter of fact the whole is abominably clever while perhaps also both ingenuity and beauty are lacking the plot certainly displays none of the former quality and beauty except in the abstract sense which applies to any work of art which is close to perfection of its kind has of course nothing to do in that galere clever it is beyond praise because here once again we have oscar wilde joking as only oscar wilde could joke it is an extravaganza spoken by oscar through the mouths of a number of men and women Quote, almost every sentence of the dialogue said the times critic next morning bristles with epigram of the now accepted pattern the manufacture of this being apparently conducted by its patentee with the same facility as the butter woman's rank to market Unquote. Quote, yet frivolous saucy and impertinent as mr wilde's dialogue is wrote the athenaeum critic and uncharacteristic also since every personage in the drama says the same thing it is in a way diverting the audience laughs consumedly and the critic even though he should chafe which is surely superfluous laughs also in spite of himself there is moreover a grave serenity of acquiescence in the most monstrous propositions that is actually and highly humorous Unquote. the writer of at the play in the march number of the theatre found the quote, new trivial comedy a bid for popularity in the direction of farce stripped of its oscarisms regarded purely as a dramatic exercise it is not even a good specimen of its class Unquote. the critic in truth fairly surrendered at last Quote, I have not the slightest intention of seriously criticising Mr. O. Wilde's piece at the St. James's, he writes under the heading of The Importance of Being Oscar. As well might one sit down after dinner and attempt gravely to discuss the true inwardness of a souffle. Nor, unfortunately, is it necessary to enter into details as to its wildly farcical plot, as well might one, after a successful display of fireworks in the back garden, set to work laboriously to analyse the composition of a Catherine wheel. At the same time, I wish to admit, fairly and frankly, that the importance of being earnest amused me very much. Unquote. The public had never had a moment's hesitation about the play. 
each audience laughed as never has audience laughed before in a theatre where the work of an english writer of comedy has been performed oscar wilde had transplanted to london the exuberant gaiety of paris without appealing by even the faintest suggestion to that fumier of which heine spoke as being the soil on which all french comedy and farce thrive the play is a clean play a play of the knockabout farcical order with this tremendous distinction that the knockabout here is not a physical conflict but a perpetual tussle of wit and repartee it was aptly described as a fantastic farce we had here the true oscar or rather one of the true oscars full of rollicking boyish extravagant humour turning to mirth all things many people who had all along been hostile to him as a man and as a writer who had seen nothing in his works and had professed to be bored by his more serious comedies became wilde's men heart and soul after having witnessed this play a great irish writer remarked recently that after he had seen the importance of being earnest in dublin he began to look forward with impatience to the day when oscar wilde's ashes should be brought from banyer cemetery back to his native land and a statue to the great dramatist should be raised on the banks of the anna liffey and those were the words of a cynical man of the world ever chary of praise after that night at the st james's theatre london felt itself indeed the imperial city which is under tribute to no other nation for its enjoyments as for its wants one may fancy what would have been the feeling of the romans if one day a dramatist had risen up amongst them who rendered their arena free of greece our pride was flattered we could hurl back the reproach of national dullness we foresaw with pleasurable and gratified anticipation the return to the english stage of the laurel wreath that centuries ago had been wrested from us by the foreigner we felt that we could close our front door and put out a notice to the ibsens the scribes the sardous the moses the brissons the capuses and the rest that we thanked them kindly for their calls but that we needed nothing that day or on any subsequent day alas not one of those who witnessed that wonderful premiere at the st james's theatre unless indeed somewhere in the stalls or boxes there may have been seated in observation some acute pathologist did realise that the very brilliancy which so delighted him was but a symptom of a cruel mental disease the cleverness displayed appeared to the dazzled audience supernatural it was so indeed as one may see in the circus ring clowns and acrobats who perform prodigious feats because before they came into the arena they have stimulated to the uttermost their nerves and muscles and for a short time indeed do appear to be capable of deeds of skill and daring which no ordinary man might with impunity attempt as one sees in the indian bazaar the feeble fakir frenzied with drugs running a tigerish course of devastation and murder so here too an agency was at work which had forced the genius of the man who so impressed us with its splendour over the narrow borderline of which dryden speaks from circumstances which so soon afterwards became matters of public knowledge and dismay there can be no doubt 
that it was a diseased brain which had fashioned for delight and laughter these splendid and exuberant imaginings. It will be remembered that in the early part of 1892, Oscar Wilde suddenly passed from a precarious and troubled existence, from which sheer penury was not always absent, to a height of prosperity and prospects of great wealth and power. Even the strongest heads have been known to turn under such a shock. In Oscar Wilde's case, we have a man who, by predisposition and atavism on both sides of his family, was one least prepared to withstand a shock so powerful. Physical causes contributed to inflame what may be described as the psychical traumatism caused by this blow. He was ever a man fond of the pleasures of the table, of wines and spirits, and the use of the narcotic tobacco. Till that point in his career, absence of means had put a certain check upon extravagant indulgence. After his accession to prosperity, this check was removed, and for many months, indeed, for the period of three years, he was overstimulating his body and poisoning his nerve centres, to an extent which is revealed to us by the complete state of neurasthenia into which he fell shortly before his death. A very distinguished lady, who has made a life study of the question of nutrition on the mental state of man, recently expressed in a letter her conviction that it was to his irregular mode of life that much of Oscar Wilde's downfall could be attributed, both before and after his confinement in a jail. My belief is, she wrote to the author of The Story of an Unhappy Friendship, quote, and you'd seem to suggest something of the same kind, that the prison fare restored his health and his brain, and that had he had some really true friend who could have kept all alcohol and all meat and high living from him, he would have returned to his poor wife and all would have been different. I am so entirely convinced this is the case in hundreds of cases. The return to old drinks and the old foods reproduces the old self-same mental aberration which continually makes prisoners return to exactly the same state they were in before they went to prison and to commit the same crimes. End quote. The temperance lecturers, if they had courage to quote the example, could find in the cases of those two brilliant men, William and Oscar Wilde, most striking demonstrations of the truth of their teachings and the importance of their warnings. The man who drinks may not injure himself. He may not die in good repute and lie buried under eulogistic marble, but he transmits to his aftercomers in their life-blood the very germs of dissolution, crime and death. Oscar paid in his innocent person the toll that nature exacted for the centuries of Hibernian conviviality of rollicking ancestors. He was never once intoxicated in his life, except in the very last mournful weeks of his life when he sought in alcohol a stimulus to his flagging brain, he held excess in abhorrence. Yet by reason of his descendants, his indulgences, such as they were, in strong drink and gormandizing on stimulating foods, 
which would have been harmless to a man not predisposed by heredity, incontestably produced the terrible mischief which was the cause of his ruin, disgrace, and death. We have in his life the clearest demonstration of this fact. One has but to compare his mental, moral, and physical condition while he was leading a life of excess with the man whom we see in his cell in Reading Jail, writing De Profundis. Max Nordau was in the right when he spoke of Oscar Wilde as a degenerate, and his essay would have had more effect had it been worded with more charity and less rancour. There was in the composition of that wonderful brain, hidden somewhere, a demon factor, which the coup de fouet of alcohol and excess of stimulating food could lash into periodical activity. The evidence is very strong that Oscar Wilde's special form of disease was epileptiform, as indeed are all the most cruel afflictions of the brain. One striking characteristic of these formidable maladies is that their victim, who, while under the influence of the paroxysm he commits the most atrocious deeds, is, when he recovers his sanity, totally unconscious of what he has done. When Hall Cain, some years ago, was preparing for a book on drunkenness, he was supplied by the great American temperance lecturer, Guff, with an illustration of the fatal dangers of drink to certain natures. A man, related Guff, woke up one morning in the lockup in New York, horribly ashamed to find himself a worthy, respectable citizen in such a place, he called to the warder and asked him what could have caused his arrest. I suppose I got drunk last night, he said. You did so, said the warder. My poor wife, cried the man, bitterly ashamed. What will she say when she hears that? He then asked how soon it would be before he was taken before the magistrate to pay his fine and to return home. You won't go up today, said the warder. You are in for murder. You killed someone last night. The horrified prisoner refused to believe it. When at last the dreadful truth dawned upon him that the warder was speaking seriously, and that, indeed, his hands were stained in blood, he thought first of all the misery and consternation which this would produce at home. My poor wife! My poor wife! he cried. Why, man, cried the warder, almost indignantly, for he supposed the man to be feigning ignorance. Sure, and it's your wife that ye've murdered. This was without a doubt a man's suffering, though he did not know it, from an epileptiform affliction. He was a man who, if he had never got drunk, might have lived a blameless and honoured life. The alcohol had whipped the sleeping fiend into activity, there are thousands of men walking about London at this moment who are in his case. One reads every day in the law reports, in the sordid and mournful records of the police courts and the Old Bailey, of cases which exactly tally with this one. That Oscar Wilde's psychopathia was the same, every piece of evidence that we have before us goes to confirm. Alcohol was sheer poison to him. All the extraordinary acts which he committed, 
the acts of sheer insanity were committed not when he was drunk, for he never was drunk, but when alcohol had developed an epileptic crisis in his head. It is such a pity that people, because they are still so entirely under the stupid domination of the church, will not approach the consideration of these matters in a purely scientific spirit. After each crisis, Oscar Wilde seems to have been totally unconscious of having done anything bad, detestable, shameful, or even unusual. Under no other condition could he have maintained the serene and tranquil dignity which stamped him in his sane moments. Many of his friends refused to believe one word of the charges brought against him when the terrible revelations of the Old Bailey were made. Many even today refuse to believe them. It must be remembered also that until the very day of his arrest, his wife had not the faintest suspicion of anything wrong in his conduct. Such consummate dissimulation, where it is not hypocrisy, and Oscar Wilde was no hypocrite, could not be a hypocrite, was too arrogant to be a hypocrite, is invariably the concomitant of the worst forms of madness. During the three or four years of his excessive indulgences in drink and food, his conduct appears, from what was heard afterwards, to have caused disquietude to his friends, and disgust to his enemies. After his downfall, one heard that during that time his example had made London, quote, impossible. This one man, it was stated, had corrupted the metropolis of the world's greatest empire. He had infected six millions of men and women. These statements, when people came to reflect, did not appear, even to those who had never paused to consider causes, so entirely preposterous. It was remembered that, during the period referred to, the language of certain market porters, corner men, and fishwives in London had been far from select, that during those years the divorce courts had never once suspended their sittings, except in times of vacation, that the attendances at many churches and chapels in the metropolis had often been mournfully exiguous, and that it was dangerous for any respectable woman to walk alone and unattended after midnight in the Haymarket or Piccadilly. It is incontestable also that during that period a number of minor writers of verse, who called themselves New Hedonists or Modern Decadents, published little books of unpleasing verses and that one or two publishers did in the issuing of these verses realise a certain competency. But the readers of these verses were very few, and the nasty little poets soon crept back into their suburban kennels to take to easier and more remunerative forms of writing. If one looks today for the pornographic pleiad, which was oozed forth onto the surface of the London mud in those days, it is not even in the purlieus of Parnassus that such individuals as have survived will be found. They are middle-aged now, the new hedonists, whiskered and paunchy. The thin veneer of artistry has long since been peeled off their faces, and the rank stigmata of the Philistine now stand forth. 
There is a horrible passage in one of Lombroso's books in which, writing of criminal women, he says that in youth it is very difficult, almost impossible, for the physiologist to detect the sure signs of their criminality. The freshness of their complexions, the chubbiness of their faces, hide the stigmata. It is only towards middle age that these signs, which all along have been there, though concealed by the mask of youth, come forth in all their horrible significance. This passage often occurs to him who today considers the men who formed the band of decadents and hedonists, who mimicked Oscar Wilde in his acts of insanity, thinking in that wise to gain some of the refulgence which shone from the genius of his lucid intervals. During those years he frequently crossed to Paris. There at least, and speaking generally, no suspicion assailed him. In the essay by Henri de Regnier, to which reference has been made above, we find a pen portrait of him as he was at that time, and before quoting it, it may be as well to put down what was the opinion of this writer on Oscar Wilde, as he summed it up at the end of his essay, which, it should be remembered, was written after all the exposure had taken place. In any case, he writes, quote, We may ignore what was his manner of life in London, and recall only that we met in Paris an amiable and eloquent gentleman of that name who all will remember who are fond of beautiful language and beautiful stories. Unquote. This is the picture which Henri de Regnier paints of Oscar Wilde in the early 90s. Quote, Each year, in the spring and sometimes in the winter, one used to meet a perfect English gentleman in Paris. He used to lead in Paris the life which Monsieur Paul Bourget, for instance, might lead in London, frequenting artists and showing himself in salons and fashionable restaurants in the company of the leaders of mundane society, seeking in one word all things which can interest a man who knows how to think and who knows how to live. This foreigner was tall and of great corpulence, a high complexion seemed to give still greater width to his clean-shaven and proconsular face. It was the unbearded, glabre face that one sees on coins. The eyes smiled, the hands seemed to be beautiful, they were rather fleshy and plump, and one of them was ornamented with a ring in which a beetle of green stone was set. The man's tall figure allowed of his wearing ample and masterly frock coats, which opened out on somewhat loud waistcoats of smooth velvet or flowered satins. Oriental cigarettes with gold tips were ever consuming themselves into smoke in his mouth. A rare blossom in his buttonhole gave a finishing touch to his rich attire, in which every detail seemed to have been carefully studied. From cab to cab, from café to café, from salon to salon, he moved with the lazy gait of a stout man who is rather weary. He carried on his correspondence by means of telegrams, and his conversation by means of apologues. He passed from a luncheon with Monsieur Barret 
to a dinner with Monsieur Maurice, for he was curious about all kinds of thoughts and manners of thinking, and the bold, concise, and ingenious ideas of the former interested him as much as the short, sonorous, and peremptory affirmations of the latter. Paris welcomed this traveller with a certain amount of curiosity. Monsieur Théodore de Oiseaux scratched him, but nothing disturbed his stolid bearing, his smiling serenity, and his mocking beatitude. Which of us did not meet him during those years? I also had the pleasure of seeing him, and of seeing him again, sometimes. His name was Oscar Wilde. He was an English poet and a man of wit. Unquote. However, when he was accompanied, as he sometimes was, by the evil genius of his life, he seems in Paris also to have displayed eccentricities which did not escape the keen and satirical observation of certain. In Octave Mirbeau's book Le Journal d'une Femme de Chambre, there is a picture of Oscar Wilde which reveals him as the poser that he seemed to be when his fits were upon him, or when he had at his side to prompt him the corrupting influence which we have indicated. Mirbeau describes a soiree, a dinner party in the Grand Bohème of Paris, at which are present two English guests, Lucien Sartoris and Sir Harry Kimberley. The characteristic of these two friends are described in the crude realism of expression which is employed throughout the book by Mirbeau. Sir Harry Kimberley is Oscar Wilde. It is apparent that Mirbeau must have met him at some such dinner party as is depicted here, and that Oscar Wilde was talking nonsense. He records a long story which Oscar Wilde told on that occasion, adding just enough of his own to carry the bathos of it to its lowest point. He castigates the attitudes of the foolish women who were listening, and quotes their foolish comments. The incident covers many pages of the book. Kimberley concludes his story by saying, And that is why I have dipped the point of my golden knife in the preserves which the Kanaka virgins had prepared, in honour of a betrothal such as our century, ignorant of beauty, never saw the like of in splendour and magnificence. After the dinner, Kimberley goes from group to group asking, have you drunk of the milk of the fisher weasel? Oh, drink the milk of the fisher weasel. It is so ravishing. We see here the Oscar Wilde as he was at first during that scene which is described by Jean-Joseph Renaud. But unlike as on that occasion, he was unconscious of the effect that he was producing. We find also in the story of an unhappy friendship that the author who was one of Oscar Wilde's oldest friends, visiting him in January of 1895, detected a surprising change in him both physically and mentally. This is the passage referred to. Quote, it was at Christmas that I met him last, before the catastrophe of 1895, and my impression was altogether a painful one. He was not the friend I had known and admired for so many years. I dined with him at Tite Street, for once there was no pleasure but distress, rather, in the occasion. He looked bloated. His face seemed to have lost its spiritual beauty, 
and was oozing with material prosperity. And his conversation also was not agreeable. I concluded that too much good living and too much success had momentarily affected him both morally and physically. There is an American slang phrase which exactly describes the impression that he produced upon me. He seemed to be suffering from a swollen head. Unquote. End of chapter 14